Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. Thanks for joining us on our podcast, which pretty regularly has stuff from Sunday morning, and this is no exception. We're continuing through Paul's letter to the church in Rome and continuing through what I've called the backbone of the New Testament. It's in many ways what the doctrine that all Christians should believe in is is really based on doctrines of grace and sanctification and damnation and the fall. Uh, Last week we ended with bad news. This week we pick up with good news. Before we get to that, I just wanted to say a brief note about the United Methodist denomination and the anxieties that are being carried in it right now. And um, the church board has been on on top of these things and, and talking about these things, but also we haven't been eager to move too fast. And of course, it's anyone's guess how fast things need to move and, and what actions need to be taken. Um, if you have any questions, you're very welcome to contact me. My, uh, my loyalties are with Jesus and the Bible, and I know everybody says that, but um, my loyalties aren't necessarily to a group of people called Methodist or um, to an institution. You know, my, my loyalties are to doing what's right, regardless of the cost. And that might sound ominous, but it's not. I just uh, I, I started a, a an online show recently called um, Plain Spoken. You can look it up on YouTube or Facebook, and we're covering different topics that are uh, uh, pertinent to being United Methodist nowadays. So I have a guest on every time. This Friday is going to be Jamie Willis from Claremore First Church's uh, church plant, The Vessel in Claremore. So uh, anyway, you're welcome to like that and follow me and what I'm doing. I, I like making educated, thoughtful decisions. So if if that's something that interests you, then I'd, I'd encourage you to follow me. All right. Well, I'm going to be done talking for now. I hope you enjoy this portion of the word from on Sunday. All right. We're in the red book in your pew on page. 1754. Susie, just mess with another one. Cody, help Susie out. She's wrestling with the pew over there. Oh, she got it. Thank you, brother. Okay, so the whole book of Romans has been concerned with the power of sin in our lives. Is sin powerful? Yes, it is. What's more powerful than sin? God's grace, always. Does that mean that we sin so that grace may abound? Heck no. Okay, by no means. God forbid. So we've been talking about the nature of righteousness and sin. The wages of sin is... But then Christ, through the promise, gives us righteousness, which leads to eternal life. Okay, so we're dealing with these extremes. Dark versus light, good versus bad, life versus death. 
uh, salvation versus damnation. Th this hits at the core of Christian faith and doctrine. Has it been an easy book? New. No. Last week we dealt with some phrases that don't seem to fit with the rest of the book. We have to understand that our approach to scripture, we don't get to just cancel out the parts we don't like and walk with the parts that we do. Rather, Paul was Paul a schizophrenic? Did he preach opposite things? Did he preach one? So no, he, he preached a uniform message, but that message is complicated. That means that he wrote down complicated books and we have to have complicated thoughts to understand them. Now, do you think it's unnecessary to get complicated about it? There are a lot of people who say, just give me Jesus. Just give me Jesus. I don't need all that doctrine. Listen, if it wasn't necessary, it would not be in your Bible. This is the necessary book. This is the everything in here is necessary book. If it's not in this book, is it necessary? No. But if it is in this book, is it necessary? Yes. So we have to take the time. We have to set aside the energy to figure out what's in here. Now, last, last week, we did Romans 7, and that was a bad news chapter, okay? And I quoted John Wesley saying, I find that in order to, to have a healthy population, I need to preach 90% law, 10% grace. The law is good, but it exposes how bad we are and even exacerbates it, even makes it worse. The law, when we're talking about the law, we're talking about the Old Testament law, right? The law given on Mount Sinai to Moses that all the Jews have lived by, that leads to death and damnation because it exposes and makes worse how bad we are already. The doctrine of the fall is throughout all of this. We are all born broken. We're all born inclined towards sinning. We're all born alienated from God in need of fixing, okay? And then, does God make that possible? Yes, so that's the good news. The good news is not what you're going to find in lots of churches, which is, you're good enough. You are worthy. God loves everything you do. Just put a little bit of money in the plate. That is not the gospel. That is not what's in the Bible. Any church that preaches that way is not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is, you were born broken and unworthy, and God loved you anyway. He died for you Christ died for you while you were dead in your sins, while you had never done anything to deserve or earn it. He loves you that much. He moved heaven and earth to make your salvation possible. And then that's what the whole story of the Bible is about. And our job is to learn how beautiful that is, to live out how beautiful that is, to rejoice in the beauty and wonder of that. And if we look at that and we find that ugly, well, then we need to pray on that. Because you can't, I mean, look at that cross. The cross represents something like an electric chair. In the world of Jesus, they looked at crosses and they shuddered. They knew it was grotesque. That's where people suffered and shuddered and died and, and, and nastiness. And Jesus redeemed that, and then he redeemed us through that. We have to learn to see ourselves as Jesus sees us. Need, need, needing salvation. Not worthy of salvation. Needing salvation. That's what this book is about. So anyway, chapter 7 ended with verse 24. Paul was pretending to be this man that was born dead in his sins and then came into the law as a Jew. He says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? He's talking about how he was powerless against sin, how the law brought out sin. Do you remember this? It was a very discouraging chapter, but then he turns to the good news. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Does Jesus leave us dead in our sins? 
Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. He requires of us, he gives us a new birth by the power of the Holy Spirit. You remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus in the night? Jesus said, you must be born again. Nicodemus said, I can't go back into my mother and come back out. And Jesus said, truly, I tell you, unless you be born again by water and the spirit, you will never inherit the kingdom of God. You will not. If you die the same as you were born, you're damned. So let's hear about the good news. Let's hear about how Jesus saves us. Chapter eight. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So we're dealing with different laws here. There's a lot of law to talk. There's the, there's the law of the covenant of Moses. There's the law of sin. Last week we talked about the law of our mind, which sees that sin is bad and we want to turn from it, but we can't. But now there's another law he's introducing, the law of the spirit that leads to life, eternal life. So that law comes in and it displaces the other laws. It displaces the law of sin, the law of the old covenant, the law even of your mind. It becomes a new law, a law of love, a law of life. Who wants that law reigning in you? Verse 3, for what the law was powerless to do, he's now talking about the Old Testament law. It showed me how good God is, how good I should be, what it was powerless to do because it was weakened in the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So we cannot save ourselves, right? That should be an easy one. We cannot save ourselves, right? There is nothing we can do to purchase our salvation. That's why it's grace. Grace is the unearned, undeserved, free gift of God. God gives us that because we can't get it ourselves. If we could earn our own salvation, then what God did by sending Jesus to die on the cross was unnecessary and cruel because it didn't need to happen. But if we can't save ourselves, then God did the only thing that could be done to save us, which was allow his son to die on the cross to shed his blood for us. That's the only thing that could happen to save you and me. If that had not happened, we could not be saved. Christianity is not just about a set of teachings. Yes, it does have teachings. Christianity is about joining in a covenant relationship with a God who died for us. No other religion has that. No other religion has anything that comes close to that. That makes no sense to other religions. Other religions mock that. That is what we glory in. That is what saves us. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. So Jesus took on our sin, right? And then died. So he condemned our sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. We didn't meet it. Jesus met it. You understand? He took on our sin so that we could take on his righteousness. It could be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. What kind of humans do not live according to the flesh anymore, but live according to the Holy Spirit? Christians. The only ones are Christians. They are the ones who have been born again by the power of water and the Holy Spirit. That's who Jesus talked about in John chapter 3. The Christians are the only ones who live by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh, are those the good guys? No, that's how everybody's born, living according to the flesh. They have their minds set on what flesh 
desires. What does flesh desire? What kind of things is he talking about here? Just holler it out. Uh, be louder. Money, wealth, power, comfort, security, affection even, to some degree. These are things that the flesh desires. Food, friends, family, good reputation. These are all worldly concerns, aren't they? Is there any other way to be in the world? There are some people who hear, who hear me preaching about that and they say, you've just ruled out everything. You've just ruled out everything true and good, Jeffrey. If that's how you've heard it, you're still in the flesh. You don't understand spiritual things. But those who live according with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. What does the Spirit desire, if not those things? Huh? Did you say the Lord? That's a good answer. Yeah, the Lord. Holiness. Righteousness. We're going to get to a part here, very, very uncomfortable, where he says we should desire to suffer with Jesus. What kind of sickos desire to suffer? You hear how worldly people would hear this and go, this is weird. This is gross. I don't want any part of this. What we preach in the church is not, you know, there's some people who are like, how could anyone reject Jesus? Why would anyone not want to be a Christian? Well, because if you're worldly, it sounds like the worst case scenario to be a Christian. Verse 6, the mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The world says, do you desire life and peace? Well, then get a lot of money, get a big house, get a lot of guns, get a lot of friends, get a good reputation, set things all in order so that nothing can go wrong, and don't think about that some fact you're going to die and lose it all. That's what the world says. The Bible says if you want life and peace, don't worry about any of that other stuff. Devote everything you have, everything you are to Christ Jesus, and be willing to suffer until death. Those are two opposite messages, aren't they? I feel like they are. Are y'all not responding because you just don't like what I'm saying? Or I don't feel like I'm being boring. I haven't gotten to the boring part yet, guys. I'm trying to paint two very stark pictures about a way of living in the world. We are in the mainline church. The United Methodist Church is one of many mainline denominations which participated in this heresy of making people think it's not a big deal to sin and that the world is basically a good place and it's okay to fit in there. And I'm trying to undo that heresy by making very clear there are two very stark representations of the Bible, in the Bible, of ways to live. There's a worldly, fleshly, death-dying, destruction way, and then there's a life-giving, spirit-led, holy, eternal way. And we're hopefully aiming for the latter one, right? But you're not going to be able to navigate that if you don't see the difference between what the world offers and what Christ offers. I've been preaching here seven years. I don't think I've done a good enough job on this one. I'm trying to rectify it today. Verse 7, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. Hostile means enemies. Don't want to be close to. If you're governed by the flesh, you are not friends with God. You might say you are. You might identify as a friend of God. You are not a friend of God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. It can't. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Accept, but no. Cannot please God, ever. Give up on yourself, give up on your flesh, live in the Spirit. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, are you? Are you? You are not in the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. You see how S is capitalized there? It's talking about the Holy Spirit. 
if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If. There are a lot of people who say they love Jesus that the Holy Spirit is not living and breathing in. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. They are not a Christian. They have not been born again. They cannot be saved. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, all our bodies are going to die, right? Unless Christ comes before I die, yeah, my body is going to die. Even so, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. So if the Holy Spirit is in me, it can redeem this body that dies and everything this body is attached to. Verse 11, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, who, who raised Jesus from the dead? God the Father. If his Holy Spirit is in you, then God can do the exact same with you that he did with Jesus. And he will. Not only can he, he will. He will raise you from the dead. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. So was Jesus raised bodily? Did he have a body when he was raised? Yes, this is a, a foundational doctrine of the church throughout all the ages. He had a body. Our bodies will likewise be saved, be redeemed, perfected, made heaven, heavenly and holy. Verse 12, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. A lot of people, oh, got to do things. Yes, you've got to do things. <laughs> uh, humans are beasts of burden. Have you ever known anybody who just doesn't have to do anything? They just do whatever they want. They're the most miserable people that's ever been. We are not meant to be free in that way. We're meant to be free to take on that burden and do good. We have an obligation, but our obligation is not to the flesh to live according to it. Your belly says, feed me food. You don't have to give food to your belly. Your flesh says, I want comfort. You don't have to comfort your flesh. Oh, I feel in danger. You don't have to, you don't have to go to the safe place all the time. If you're in danger, if you're miserable, if you're sick, well, guess what? So was Jesus. So were the apostles. This way of life has been, we got a pioneer leading us through that way of life. That is not a failure. If you listen to prosperity gospel, yeah, you haven't prayed enough. If you listen to Jesus, yeah, you're suffering. That might be evidence that God loves you. He is perfecting you. He is ministering to you. Lean into that. Don't run away from that. You don't owe your body anything. If you don't owe your body anything, who do you owe? How come Suzanne is getting this and y'all aren't? Jesus, I'm being kind of mean to y'all today. I, I'm sorry. But you know the answers to these questions. If we don't owe our bodies anything, who do we owe? Jesus. We owe everything to him. He owns us. He is our master. We call him Lord. What does Lord mean? Boss. We belong to him. We do what he says. Amen? That's what we should be doing. Verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So while we're in the flesh, are we supposed to be just hanging out hunky-dory, letting our sin live within us? No, he says we're supposed to be at war against the sin in us so that we can live eternally. We are not beatnik hippies, okay? Christians are not all about peace and love and flower children. We are warriors doing spiritual war against the forces of darkness that would kill us. Verse 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. I thought everybody was children of God. Isn't everybody children of God? No. Susie knows that one too. No, we're all born without a father. We're born fatherless. We're born orphans. God adopts us when we are born again. Verse 15, the Spirit you received, the Holy Spirit, when you received it, when you were justified, does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Well, if we're not slaves, what are we? 
Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Sonship means being a son of. You ladies, your sons too, your daughters. It, it all applies. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Uh, that's a very intimate term for father. You can think of daddy. God becomes our father in the same way that he is the father of Jesus. Not exactly the same, but a very similar way. So that he says, verse 16, the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. That means you inherit the blessings of. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Where is Christ? In heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. That means that we also have been guaranteed a place in heaven. When we are in Christ Jesus, we are adopted into the family and given a place at Jesus' side. Do we deserve this? No, it's the most scandalous, wonderful blessing that could ever be given. It's so far out of line with what we deserve. Thanks be to God. This is the good news right here. But it has an if clause. It says you will have this if. Now, if we are children, verse 17, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings. He had to ruin it. If we share in his sufferings in order that we might also share in his glory. Do you want to share in Christ's glorification? Do you want to be up in heaven with him? Well, what if the only way there is through a path of suffering? What then? Some of you are being very bold in your responses. You're encouraging me. This is kind of out of the ordinary. <laughs> Usually I say things like that and y'all just kind of stare at me. But I think it's being very clear here. If you're not willing to suffer with Christ, then you're not entitled to be glorified with Christ, are you? Not that we can ever be entitled to glorification, but the thing is, if you want the end, you got to want the middle too. If I want to be married to my wife, I take her not just on her good days, but on her bad days, right? I don't get to just dismiss my daughter on a day that she is upsetting me. She's my daughter every day. Now, my God is my God, whether or not he requires me to go through the valley of the shadow of death. And even better than that, I trust that whenever he requires that I suffer, that it's actually good for me. Susanna, what does pain do? It goes away, and it makes you stronger. And that's what suffering does in our life of faith. We remain weak and soft if we don't suffer. Anybody know that? When you think about the people in the 1920s, 30s, 40s that fought two world wars, went through the Great Depression, farmed their own food, made their own stuff, those people were tougher than us, weren't they? Because they went through hard times, didn't they? And we've gotten soft. We need to be hard and strong for Jesus, and that means he conditions us through suffering. Verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Do we live in an age of suffering? This world is a place of suffering, absolutely. Have some of you suffered? Have some of us suffered? Absolutely. To, what, to be alive is to suffer to one degree or another. But are we so broken by that suffering? Are we permanently damaged by that suffering? We live in an age that talks about trauma like it's a real thing. Trauma is you have been so badly treated that you can never be repaired, ever. So we just need to give up on you and let you be half than, less than a person. That's the notion of trauma. That's not a biblical notion. The biblical notion is God is so powerful, he can heal anything you've been through, everything you've been through. Whatever you've been through, doesn't matter how badly you've been treated or damaged, Christ can and will restore you. Is that a good promise? That's about one of the best promises you can make somebody unless they learn to love their suffering, unless they learn to love their victim mentality, unless they learn to love the darkness.
Because trauma leads to darkness, doesn't it? Anybody know somebody who's traumatized? They're treated like less than people. They see themselves as less than people. They've given up on themselves. They want everybody else to give up on them. I can think of no sadder existence. God doesn't give up on us. Not in that way. He says, Paul says, I consider that our sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. God's glory is not outside of us only. It's inside of us too. And it's going to be revealed on the last day. It's going to be so glorious. How glorious is it going to be? Verse 19, for the creation, everything God created waits in eager expectation for the children of God. That's us to be revealed. That's on the last day when our earthly death bodies are transformed into glorious bodies like Jesus. On that day, all of creation is yearning for that. For the creation was subjected to frustration by its own, not by its own choice. Not by, so all, when God created the universe, everything was perfect. Nothing died, nothing fell apart. If you've studied Newtonian physics, one of the laws is entropy. Everything spreads out, grows colder, falls apart, dies. Our, our star, the sun is someday going to die. Earth is, is going to fall apart and get knocked apart. That's what the creation is that we're living in right now. It was subjected to futility, vanity, death. But he's saying on the day of the Lord, when his glory is revealed, entropy was, is going to go away. Everything lasts forever. We weren't created to die. We weren't created to fall apart. This universe wasn't created to fall apart and fizzle out and spread out. It was created to sustain as God sustains for all eternity. And then we messed that up. When we sinned, it not only tore us apart, it tore the whole universe apart. Ever since then, the whole creation has been yearning for fulfillment. And that's going to happen on the day when God is glorified in us. I've said versions of this before. I'm going to keep saying it, though. This is important. People don't realize how powerful our sin is. It ruined everything. God's grace is going to fix everything. In hope, verse 21, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. We're talking about entropy right there. It's going to be liberated from entropy, decay, and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. That's us. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. For all of the universe's history, it's groaning. It's waiting for this child to be delivered. The, the child is uh, the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation 21 and 22. Verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that's believers, we have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan, we are groaning, the, the universe is groaning, we are groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So in some sense, we've already been adopted when, we're, when we were justified, but we will be fully adopted on the day when we receive those glorious bodies, the, the, the day of the Lord, the day of resurrection. He's saying we're yearning for that. We're groaning for it. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. What is hope? But hope that is seen is no hope at all. If you can see it, you're silly for hoping. Oh, gee, I, I hope I have a pretty wife. Well, I can look at my wife. She's, she's beautiful. Why? I'm silly for hoping that. I've got it. Gee, I hope I have a wonderful daughter. Well, look at her. She's wonderful. I can, that, that's not what hope is. Hoping is for something you can't see. I hope for the day of resurrection. I hope for eternal life in Christ Jesus. I haven't seen it. I yearn for it. I groan for it. Who hopes for what they already have? Verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it. Oh, this is a dirty word. Patiently. Patience is a virtue. It's a biblical virtue. It's one we don't talk enough about. 
But patience and suffering is a biblical virtue. We're called to a life of suffering till death because Christ lies on the other side of death. But if you think it's only for this life you're living, then you're not going to have that patience. You're going to insist on things being your way now. You're going to give up on the Lord's discipline. Verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He's talked a lot about the Holy Spirit today, hasn't he? It's probably important to understand who the Holy Spirit is, what he does. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. So we got a lot of groaning going on here. We got the universe growing, groaning, we are groaning, and then the Holy Spirit in us is also groaning. Oh, we are so eager for that day of the Lord, finally to the end of this, this time of futility. Verse 27, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So here's what God is doing to save you. He sent you his Holy Spirit who is now interceding within you and helping you pray the prayers that you cannot pray. And then he's interceding between you and Jesus who is interceding between you and the Father. There's, the Trinity is involved in saving you because you cannot save yourself. At every stage, you cannot save yourself. God is doing everything that he's moving heaven and earth to save you. Does he deserve you? Does he deserve all you have, all you are? Absolutely. He has not just done what he did on the cross. He created you. He sustains you. He's redeemed you. He does that all day, every day. He deserves all of us. Verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Who's that? God help us, it better be us. God is working for all th in all things for the good. Now, does that mean that we're never going to suffer? Obviously not. just means that when he puts suffering in our way, it's going to be good for us. Everything God designs for us is good. Even the bad things that happen, God redirects to be good for us. Can anybody say amen to that? We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also, this is an interesting word here, predestined. Predestination. This is something that Christians divide on. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to, the, to be conformed. Yeah, to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, have you been glorified? Have you received your heavenly body? Are you living for eternity in, in, in the heavenly realms right now? No. This is earth. This is the realm of suffering. We're going to leave here and go out into the realm of suffering. He's talking about things that haven't happened as though they have. Now, some of us, all of us have been called, right? And of those of us who've been called, most of us here have been justified. Of those of us who've been justified, we're being sanctified. And then, praise God, those of us who go faithfully to the end will be glorified. But when you have this notion of predestination, you run into this weird doctrine of once saved, always saved. That God, from before creation, knew you, and he said, you're going to be saved. And no matter what you do in this life, you're saved. You can't screw it up. As John MacArthur says, if you could screw it up, you would. So you can't screw it up. The problem is, even in Romans... Chapter 10, in two chapters, we're going to have a threat that you can screw it up. All throughout the Bible, you have warnings that God may blot out your name from the book of life, or that you can refuse the gift or turn back once you've set your hand to the plow. All these things are there because you can 
reject your faith. Now, just so we're clear, can anything separate you from the love of God? Susie knows that one. But can we turn away from our God? Absolutely, yes. So what do you do with this? From the beginning of creation, God predestinated all things, and he was going to call these, call these. I've been reading this big book. You see how big this book is? Feel sorry for me. This is the explanatory notes on the New Testament by John Wesley. Now, John Wesley did not write the Bible. He is not the mind of God. However, he helps navigate this stuff because he has this whole section right here. You're not going to be able to see it. This whole section right here, I wrote predestination because this is how much he talks right here about this section we just did. Are we predestined, once saved, always saved? He says, actually, no. That what this reflects is that God from the beginning of creation laid down the rules by which all of this would be governed. That nothing has changed. All of it has been predestined. All of us would be called. Those who are called could be justified, could be sanctified, could be glorified. But there is nothing written saying that you've been damned and you're just only ever going to be damned. There's nothing saying that you've been saved and there's nothing you can do to screw it up. Think about that. In one sense, I mean, predestination is really comforting that I can't screw anything up. That's great. But then you have to kind of wear blinders when you read the Bible. Why would it warn us about leaving and screwing up if we can't do it? You know, it's kind of weird. Anyway, we need to move on, but um, we're going to talk about it more, I'm sure, in the near future. Verse 31. I was afraid of that. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, so we're clear. Is anybody ever against us? Absolutely. Yeah, Jesus prepares. But this is a way of saying they don't matter. They mean nothing. It might feel like they mean something. They don't. They're enemies. They mean nothing. They're going to be demolished in the end. They have no value. Who can be against us? Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. That's God the Father. He gave up his son for us. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? God is a loving father. He wants to give us good things. Do we not know this? This is the good news. We have a loving father in heaven. He did not just the, the cross thing. He's doing everything, everything he can possibly do to save us. Verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Who can bring a charge against us? It is God who justifies who then is the one who condemns? Can anyone condemn us? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, he's the only one who condemn us. More than that, who has raised to life, who's at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. The one who intercedes for us wants to condemn us? No, he wants us to live. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Can anybody separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Everybody say no. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's a quote from the Psalter. It's saying here in this life, we're suffering, aren't we? Here in this life, the world hates believers. Here in this life, Christianity is the most, by far, per capita and absolute numbers, the most persecuted religion this world has ever seen. Does that matter? No. God is going to be able to save and redeem all of it. Verse 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Are we victims? No. Bad things happen to us, but we have a good God. Sin once made a home in us, grace is now taken over. We are victors. We are more than conquerors. 
We are more than conquerors. Do you hear how different this message is from the message the world gives you? The world, as I see it, is trying to convince all of us, except white straight men, that we're victims. And I guess I should say that you're victims because I'm a white straight guy, apparently. This world is trying to convince you that you're a victim, that you've had unjust things happen to you and your ancestors. It's been passed down and you cannot get a leg up without hurting somebody else. That we have to rebalance the scales. We have to make it all right according to our, our image. And that, that there is no justice on the other side. And there is no one making things right. That we have to make it right on the terms that make sense to us. And it's a power clash. That's what life is about. That's our politics. That's what's happening in education. That's what's happening in the workplace. That's the way of this world. The Bible doesn't care about that at all. The Bible says, how are you with your Savior? Are you right with Jesus? If not, it doesn't matter what you change. This side of heaven, you are damned. And if you're right with Jesus, it doesn't matter how wrong things get this side of heaven, you are saved. It's the opposite message of what you find everywhere else. I don't care if y'all like this sermon. I like this one. I feel like I'm doing a great job today. This is the heart of the gospel right here. So know in all things we are more than conquerors through the one who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Did we hear good news today? Yes, we did. If you ever go to a different culture, if you go to East India, people don't eat the same food as us Americans over there, do they? Now, we can go over there and say, oh, I don't like the taste of this food. Give me a hamburger. And there are some people who do that. That's why the church has changed so much over the last few years. There are worldly people who want to come in here and make, feel like they're at home. But the thing is, we're people of the kingdom. We're on a different diet than the world. And people who come in from the world, they're going to go, ooh, I don't know about this spiritual food. I like the mother spiritual food. Can you make my cuisine? And we have to lovingly say, no. We serve Jesus food here. And to the world, it might sound or look bitter, might not taste good initially, but we have the acquired taste by the Holy Spirit given to us, and we yearn for this spiritual food. Not just the spiritual milk, but the meat. And we've been chomping on the meat today. So keep, go home, chomp on it some more, and be blessed. Amen?